This morning we're going to take a break from Mark. We're actually going to take a break from Mark for a couple of weeks. And I want to teach a sermon that I've preached before, but you probably haven't heard it. It was some time ago in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. So if you're using one of our church Bibles, you can turn to page 1008. That'll bring you to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning. I want to talk to you about a subject that I am convinced is so important for Christians to truly understand and embrace. And that subject is eschatological faith. Eschatological faith. It's kind of a big word. It is from two words, eschatos and logos. Eschatos just simply means last things. And logos is the doctrine or study of or teaching, something along those lines. So it's the doctrine or study of last things, eschatology. And eschatological is just the adjective. And so today we're talking about a faith that is focused on last things, things regarding or dealing with last things. Okay, what type of last things? Meaning the things that are to come in the future when this world's reality comes to a halt. So this would include heaven, it would include the return of Christ, it would include the judgment day, it would include all of those things from a Christian perspective. Eschatology, the last things. Eschatological faith then for a Christian would be a faith or a certain hope or conviction in their future reality. That is a new heaven, beloved, and a new earth. We just sang about it. That this world is a passing reality. It is passing away. We are looking for and longing for, hopefully, that day when we will see Jesus face to face. And we will worship Him in a way that we have not been able to in this life. That's eschatological faith. A new heaven, a new earth, a glorious eternal kingdom that God has promised in His Word for His people. And Christians, beloved, who consistently exercise eschatological faith, focus on and trust in the future or last day realities and blessings to come to all those who have placed their faith in these things, to all those who call Jesus Christ Lord. And as a result, their priorities and their ambitions in this present world are greatly impacted, changed. And even their attitude towards their current circumstances in this life are changed because of their hope in the future. Not the future 30 years from now in your current life on earth. Not your future retirement when theoretically you quit working and you travel the world in your motorhome. Not that future. Okay? A future that we have not seen with our eye yet, but that we have been told much about in God's Word. A future that is certain, that is glorious, that is blessed. A future that will make this world look pathetic with all of its trappings and offerings. Now, beloved, confusion has been created by so-called faith teachers. Those 
faith teachers who supposedly are experts about faith teach that Christians can and should expect and pursue the good life right now. Right now. They don't have to wait for some future blessing. They can get it all right now. And it is even said and stated in various ways that the reasons, or the reason that Christians don't live like kings in this current present age is because either they lack faith or they simply haven't been taught the truth from the Bible about how they should live in this present age. Here, let me, let me quote one of these teachers directly. God wants His children to eat the best. He wants them to wear the best clothing. He wants them to drive the best cars. And He wants them to have the best of everything. Okay? Is that true? Is this, and it is this kind of teaching that stands behind another popular faith teacher named Fred Price who said proudly that's the reason he drives a Rolls Royce. Well, the reason he drives a Rolls Royce is because the people continue to funnel their income into his ministry and he has spent it on a very expensive vehicle. By the way, his program is called Ever-Increasing Faith. But see, if you believe that the Bible teaches that It is in this age that we are to have the best. It is in this age that we are to experience all the promises that God has given us. If you truly believe that, then I I guess that would be an accurate statement, that in this life we should have the best of everything. But is that what the Bible teaches? Well, let's see what God's Word has to say on the subject of faith this morning. So, if you're there, Hebrews 11, 13... And before I read 13 through 16, I need to explain to you the context behind this letter, this book called Hebrews. It was written to Jewish believers, followers of Christ. Some were committed followers and others were still trying to figure out if they wanted to commit themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. They were at different stages along this life, along this course of responding to Christ. Now, the Jews in general were under pressure through a very real threat of persecution and suffering to abandon any hope or trust or faith in Christ and to go back to their former religion, which was Judaism. This was a religion, beloved, that mistakenly and tragically rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King. But the people who are responding to Jesus Christ, the Jews, and the ones who are thinking about it are being told, you better not do that. You better not abandon Judaism. You better not place your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do it, there will be serious consequences. You will suffer at our hands. That's the audience that Hebrews is written to. So now he is exhorting his readers, the writer of Hebrews, to continue in the faith 
to not turn back and to fully and completely embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. To give themselves and their lives to Him. Even at the expense of the suffering that would come because they turned from Judaism. One way the writer encouraged his readers to hold on to Christ in spite of the very real, beloved, real difficulties and problems that came with becoming a Christian was by telling them about the faith of three significant individuals in the Old Testament. Three individuals that they were very familiar with. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Also referred to as the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Hebrews 11, 13. Just follow along with me in the text. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So here's what we're going to do. If you're new with us, you can open your bulletins. There's an outline on the inside. You can follow along. But this morning we're going to start to examine four faith-driven habits of the patriarchs found in this text that we must duplicate in order for our lives, beloved, to be pleasing to God. Let me ask you a question. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do you have a desire within for your life to be pleasing to God? I hope so. And if you have no desire, that might be an indication that you're not a Christian. I'll just let you know that right up front. But if you have a a desire for your life to be pleasing to God, then I think this sermon will be very important for you to hear, to believe, and to apply to your life. We're only going to deal with the first two points this morning. You've got to come back next week to get the next two. As I said before, patriarchs is just a shorthand way of referring to the fathers in a sense of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are men who played very significant roles in God's plan for his world. And you will see their names in the... Old Testament, and you will see their stories specifically in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So if you want to know more about these men, I would encourage you to open that first book and read through it. Now, before we look at the first faith-driven habit, I want to look at the evidence in the Scripture for how we know the all, the word all, in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, is referring to these three men. How do we know that? How do you know that, Jeremy? How do you know he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's important to ask that question because depending on who he is talking to will change our understanding of this text and how we interpret the following, uh, the, the whole passage. And you'll see in a moment that the greater context clearly indicates that the all in verse 13 is a reference to the patriarchs. It is not, if you read the entire chapter, chapter 11, and we don't have time to do that today, There are other men listed in this chapter before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, such as Abel, Enoch, and Noah. These were also great men of faith. 
But it is not referring to these men. This section of Scripture is not referring to these men. Let me show you why. Verse 13, look back at the text. It says, these all. So whoever the these all, what's the next word? Died. They died. They ceased to exist. That grouping, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, within that grouping, Enoch, in verse 5 of chapter 11, if you're in your Bibles, you can look down there, you'll see that the text tells us that Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He is one of these characters in Scripture, it's a little mysterious, but the, the Scriptures tell us he did not actually experience death. He was taken up by God. So, since these all died, it certainly can't be referring to Enoch. And Enoch is coupled with the other two men. Beyond that, the these of verse 13 follows right after the writer's discussion of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in verses 8 through 12. Again, you can look at that for yourself, you can read the text, but verses 8 through 12 are dealing specifically with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we step into verse 13, where it says, all, or these all died in faith. Beyond that, it says, these all died not having received the things promised. These all died, and they didn't receive something that was promised. Now, beloved, this is important. What was promised? Well, the promises would historically have been understood as the covenant or special pledge that God made to Abraham first. And you can write this down so you can look it up later. Recorded in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Executed in chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. And reaffirmed in chapter 17, verses 1 through 21. All of those passages in Genesis referring to this special covenant or pledge or promises that God made to this man named Abraham. God then reaffirmed these promises to Abraham's son Isaac. We see that in Genesis chapter 26, verses 2 through 5, and verse 24, also chapter 28, verses 10 through 15, chapter 35, verses 9 through 12, chapter 46, verses 2 through 4. I'm sorry. I missed something. Let me go back. These promises were reaffirmed by God to Abraham's son Isaac, but only in Genesis 26, 2 through 5, and verse 24. They were then reaffirmed by God to Isaac's son Jacob in those verses I just read off to you, beginning with Genesis 28 and following. So here's what you have. Promises were made to Abraham. Those promises then were made again to his son. Those promises again were made to his son, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And that means that these sons were fellow heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham, which is exactly what Hebrews 11, verse 9, states. I'll just read it for you. By faith he, that is Abraham, that's the context, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. The point being that it is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God spoke to and made specific promises that are referenced here in Hebrews 11, chapter 13. But all of these men died without ever receiving the promises that God made to them. 
So the all is the patriarchs. Okay? We've got that far. Now we can look at the first point. And it is this. The patriarchs stayed the course. This is the first faith-driven habit that we must duplicate if we want our lives to be pleasing to God. They stayed the course. So we're going to explore that. Look back at the text, Hebrews 11:13. It says, "These all died in faith, not having received the things promised." Remember what I said to you. Remember that I said that this book was written to Jews who were being persecuted and under the experience of suffering because they were transitioning from Judaism to Christianity. And so the writer is, is writing these words to encourage them to stay with it. Don't go back. Don't turn away. So the words here are, are not intended to be a statement that causes distress in the reader's mind. For instance, oh my goodness, all of these guys died and they never experienced the promises. Tragic! That is not what the writer is trying to communicate. He's not trying to make them sad. But instead, it is a description of what it looks like to be a true believer and follower of God. Let me explain. This text... These words in the original language, which was Greek, it reads this way. This is the order that it reads. In faith died these all without receiving the promises. Why is that important? Faith is placed at the beginning of this statement, at the beginning of this sentence, for emphasis. The fact that the patriarchs died is not the focus of this statement. It is the fact that it was in faith that they died. And that is what is being stressed by the author. It is in faith that these men died. The text is saying that death for the patriarchs did not change or alter their faith or confidence in God one little bit. Even though they still had not received the promises that God had made to them. Or to say it another way, death before earthly fulfillment of the promises was not the ruin of their faith. Or, to say it another way, the patriarchs did not accept the idea that the crisis of death that they underwent could or would invalidate or cancel out the promises that God made to these men. They died, but they were still believing. And that meant that they believed through their entire life. Look back at the text, Hebrews eleven, thirteen. It says, They died not having received the things promised. They died not having this, received the things promised. As I said, this further defines the emphasis on their faith. It means, beloved, that their faith never became sight during their stay on earth, even up to their dying breath, these men still believe. They stayed the course. They stayed the course. They persevered through life and to the end of their life, regardless of their present 
circumstances. And they did not turn away from their hope in God and their faith in His promises to them. So what were those promises? Stay with me. What were the promises? Well, they included, but they were not limited to, a land. A land. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants would have this land as an everlasting possession. In other words, it would never be taken away from them. And also, there was a promise that the Lord God would personally bless them. We see that in Genesis 12 and 17. Now, you may not know this, but it's important to note that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dwelt or lived in this promised land that God had promised them, but they never, ever really possessed the land. It was never really theirs, but they did dwell in it. So they ultimately died believing that God would do exactly what he said, even though they didn't see it come to pass in their life. One commentator puts it this way, their faith, accordingly, met the challenge to penetrate beyond death and beyond this present world for the promise of an everlasting possession and universal blessing signified far more to them than the rights to a piece of geographical territory and a privileged posterity. All that means is that their generations following them would also be blessed. The land of promise was as a foreign land to them, and their hope was concentrated on an internal realm in which they themselves, as well as the succeeding generations of those who belong to the line of promise, would be everlastingly blessed. In other words, the writer is referring to is the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in the land, yet the text is telling us they still didn't receive the promises. So how is that possible? Well, they are looking for promises that cannot be fulfilled in the current world or present age. The idea is supported by the fact that this idea here is supported by the fact that Abraham, even though he was in the land, continued in the land as a tent dweller. That means he lived in tents. And the text tells us here, I'll look at it in a second, Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, that he was still looking for this city that would be built by God in this land. In other words, Abraham believed that God's promises were bigger and grander than their current reality was expressing even though theoretically they were in the land that God had promised them. Look at the text, Hebrews 11.9. You can just see it. You can read it for yourself. It says, By faith, that is Abraham, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is what Abraham was looking for. A city whose designer and builder is God. It is the same city that is referred to in Hebrews 13, 14. And there the text says, For here we have no lasting city. Meaning this world, this earth, we don't have a lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. The city that is to come. A future reality. A future blessing. 
So by including this example here of enduring faith by the patriarchs, faith that lasted till the end, beloved, the writer is encouraging and exhorting the Hebrew readers to hold on. Keep believing, keep trusting, even under hardship, even under the threat of death, so that they might enter into that future eternal rest God had promised to them, ultimately that would come through Jesus Christ. Continuing in faith or staying the course, indeed, is a recurring theme as you move through the book of Hebrews. Let me just show you that. Reading from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, in a slightly different translation, New American Standard Bible, it says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us not let go. Let us hold on. Let us stay the course until the end. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And what he means there is don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back, beloved. Don't abandon Christ. For he who promised is faithful. Beloved, Christianity is not simply about starting the race. It is about finishing it. It is about staying the course until the end. In fact, the reason I chose that phrase, stay the course, is because I think it, it accurately describes what it is we are to do, what it, what it should be, that faith-driven habit. It was used repeatedly in the early years of our war with the Middle East after 9-11. Maybe you remember, maybe you don't. We were commanded we're going to have to stay the course. The, the phrase basically means to pursue a goal regardless of any obstacles or criticism. Pursue a goal regardless of the stuff that will come against you to try to take you off of that path, to try to stop you from reaching that end. Before the war began, the president talked about, at the time, George Bush, the intestinal fortitude. You know what that means? It means the ongoing guts that we would need to have as a nation to pursue the enemy to the ends of the earth hunt them down, and kill them. That's what he said. And the nation was all riled up. Right? Because they just dropped a couple buildings and killed thousands of innocent people. So we were on board. But this man knew, George Bush knew, we might be riled up now, but when things get tough, we may not be as supportive. And that's exactly what happened, beloved. As, as the war progressed and our, our men and women started coming home in body bags, then the support began to fade. Well, when a person becomes a Christian, 
They are enlisting in a spiritual battle. How many of you know that? A few of you. They are enlisting in war. They are not joining a club. Like Club Med. Where they will receive all the benefits of membership and a life of ease. Massages and coffee and all the wonderful things and luxuries. What? No! Because all of those things have been promised to us in the future. But now in this age, there is a battle. There is a very real battle. And these readers in Hebrew were, Hebrews were experiencing that battle as they were being persecuted and being threatened and having their stuff taken away because they followed Jesus Christ, because they had committed themselves to Him, because they decided to place their faith in Him. And they immediately experienced what it means to be in battle. And the writer knew that these, these men and women, these Jewish men and women, who had made that tough decision, would need intestinal fortitude to stay the course. They would have to have ongoing guts. Beloved, when circumstances in our life become difficult, and they will, they will. And by the way, when things get better again, that's great. Rejoice in that. But there's another season coming. Because we're still in battle. This is not our rest, beloved. It is not now that we are to have luxuries and the best of everything. That day is coming. But it is not now. These men died in faith, never receiving the promises. Was there something wrong with them? They must not have had ever-increasing faith. Maybe if they just had the teaching of some of these faith teachers, maybe their life would have been better. No. They were looking for something. They were longing for something. And because of that, they stayed the course. They didn't give up. They didn't turn back. But beloved, back to this, when difficulties present themselves in our lives, and they will if we have entered into that Christian battle. You think Satan likes you being a Christian? We we must not abandon our Christianity, but hold on tight to our faith. Our faith specifically in the things God has promised for the future to those who stay the course. Better days are coming, beloved, and that hope should give us the strength to press on and continue in the faith. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. In 1952... Young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. Have you ever been to Catalina? Well, that's quite a swim. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally 
exhausted, spent. She stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half a mile away. At the news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. See, beloved, we have to see the finish line. The goal, the fantastic future that God has for us, for us as His beloved. And then and only then will we have the courage and the motivation and the intestinal fortitude to press on in spite of the things that will certainly challenge us as we attempt to stay the course. The things that will fight for us to turn back, to give up. These men even though they didn't receive the promises in this life, died still believing. They continued to trust that God would deliver. And so it radically changed their lives. And that brings me to the second point. The patriarchs saw the future. They saw the future. Do you know why they stayed the course? Because they didn't get caught in the fog. They saw the mainland. So they kept swimming. They didn't get in the boat. They didn't turn back. But they could see through the fog. Beloved, we got a lot of fog. We got a lot of fog. We need to turn on our super duper fog lights. We need to blast through that garbage. Because if we lose sight of our future, we will not stay the course. We'll turn back. We'll give up. We'll flounder. So look back here. Hebrews 11:13. The patriarchs saw the future. Let's explore that. These all died in faith. They died in faith. They, in faith, they died. They believed till the end. They never gave up. They never turned back. But they didn't receive the things promised. Ah. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. Stop right there. They saw by faith the future fulfillment of God's promises to them. How did they see them? Did they receive a secret vision? No. Divine crystal ball? No. It says seeing them from afar. One translation says, or from a distance. It's the thought of foreseeing something not yet fulfilled. Not yet fulfilled. In other words, seeing something as real before it becomes a reality. Faith. Eschatological faith. And the text says that they greeted what they saw from afar. They greeted it. They, they welcomed it. It has the idea that, the, that they accepted with pleasure or gladness the prospect of future fulfillment of what they saw. They were jazzed, excited about what they saw by faith. They did not shrink back from what they saw. Oh, that's my future. But they embraced it. That's what the writer's trying to communicate. They embraced it. Now, they did not see these promises with their physical eyes, right? But they saw with eyes of faith the things that God had promised to them. And their faith resulted in an unshakable confidence in the future God had promised for them 
And so real was their sight that it altered the direction of these men's lives forever. It changed them. Listen to what one very early Christian writer writes about Abraham. He says this, Abraham was accustomed to yield the first place to others, to expose himself to dangers, to endure numberless afflictions. He built no splendid houses. Do you remember? He was in the land dwelling in tents. He built no splendid houses, beloved. He enjoyed no luxuries. He had no care about dress, which all belongs to the things of this world. But he lived in all respects as one whose home is in the city which is yonder, in the future, at a distance. See, the original readers of Hebrew were tempted, as I've said many times now, to abandon their faith because of the very real threat of persecution as a result of confessing their allegiance to Jesus Christ. What they needed was to be strengthened to stay the course by seeing the reality of their future rest that had been secured for them through their Savior, Jesus Christ, the one that they were being tempted to abandon. Now look at this text with me, and you will see this even more so. Just to the left, Hebrews chapter 10, just flip back. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Listen to what the writer says here. For you had compassion on those in prison. I'm just going to stop right there. Just so you know, those in prison, they're not in prison because they've robbed or murdered or that's not what's going on here. They're in prison for their faith. Just so you know. So these people that are in prison have been locked up because they have pursued Jesus Christ. And the text says here, For you have had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. We'll get back to that. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. Now, beloved, check the I this is just look. It says endurance, not relief. Make a note of that. It doesn't say that these men and women who are pursuing Christ need relief. He says you need endurance to maintain, to stay the course, even in the face of all that you are experiencing. He doesn't pray for them to get out of the trouble. He prays for them to stay in the trouble and be able to endure to the end. That's interesting. That'll flip some of you today. Mess with your heads. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. He's talking about Christ. Stay the course is what he's saying. Now listen, these people joyfully, that's what it says, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, the taking of their stuff. Do you understand that, what he just wrote there? They joyfully accepted the taking of their stuff. 
Did you see, did you hear about that? I don't know if it was a woman or a guy. It doesn't really matter. It was pepper spraying people on Friday to keep them from getting her door prize, her early bird special or whatever from Walmart. I don't even know where it was. Did you see, did you hear about that? Oh, you ain't taking my, that wasn't even her stuff yet. It was still the store stuff, but she had claimed it as hers. She was willing to, you know, take people down, pepper spray them. I don't know, whatever it takes to get my stuff. These people actually, it was their stuff. They accepted the persecution, the suffering, and you know how they accepted it? Oh, man, oh, I can't believe, everything is lost. It's all gone. My life is over. I worked so hard for all that stuff, and, and because I follow Christ, this is what I get. They didn't do that. I might do that. It says they joyfully accepted the taking of their... How can someone do that, beloved? How could you possibly joyfully accept that? Well, the text tells us. We don't, have to, we don't have to guess it because they had a hope, a certain hope of better things to come, a hope in things that would never be taken away. Never. That's what it says. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. One that stays forever. One that thieves don't come in and break in and steal. One that moths don't ruin or rust corrupts. Turn over to Hebrews 11, just to the right. You'll see this. Continuing theme as you move through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 24. Listen to what the writer says there. Again, now, giving them an example of a man of faith. He says, by faith, Moses. Right? We know Moses. He led his people out of Egypt through God's power. But Moses grew up in, in Pharaoh's house. He grew up, To grow up in Pharaoh's house, beloved, would be to grow up in, in Beverly Hills, in the richest home. It probably, it's even grander than that. He, he grew up first class. You know what I'm saying? There was nothing that he didn't have or could ask for. But it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why, why would you give all that up, Moses? Oh, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Than all the treasures of Egypt. You know why? Because he was looking to the reward. See, Moses was willing to suffer and refuse the passing pleasures of sin, and there were plenty and multiple offered to him. He refused it all. Why? Why did he stay the course? Why was he willing to be abused? Why was he willing to give all that up? Because he was looking to the reward. To the promises that God had made. It's always the case. When you go to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, there's a very familiar passage there. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me give you this definition of it by one writer. I think it's good. Faith, beloved, is the confident assurance which the believer has because God has provided conviction about unseen realities. Let me say that again. Faith is the confident assurance which the believer has 
Because God has provided conviction about unseen realities. Eschatological faith. Now, we should not wait until we suffer or get closer to death before we seriously consider the unseen realities of our heavenly home. Don't wait. In fact, it's critical for us to keep it ever before our eyes if we intend to live a life that is pleasing to God and if we have any hope of staying the course. I am so convinced of this. In fact, I know based on my conversations with many people and my life experience in the ministry that this is one of the key problems within the church and among the people of God. They have taken their eyes off of that future reward and hope and glory and promise. And they have placed them squarely down into this pathetic, passing world. And the fog has set in. They are off course. But, one of the reasons that happens is the thought of our future heavenly home for many is just not that motivating. It's just not that exciting. Because sometimes it's a pathetic vision that's been informed more by Hollywood or ignorance than by God's Word. One author put it this way. You'll like this. Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea of eternity as an unending church service. We have... Can you imagine me just rambling on? Yeah, we can. You do it every Sunday. Yeah, I know. But forever? Oh, no. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky. One great hymn after another. Forever and ever. Amen. And our heart sinks. Forever and and ever? That's what I'm looking forward to. That's it? That's the good news? That's the reward? And then we sigh and feel guilty, guilty that we are not more spiritual. And we lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. MacArthur says it this way, Christians whose faith does not extend to heaven will have their eyes on the things of the world and will wonder why they are not happier. Nothing in this life, nothing in this life, including earthly blessings, will give a believer the satisfaction and joy that come with absolute assurance of future glory. Nothing. When we fail to see our future rightly, or even at all, beloved, then we struggle to live a life. We will struggle to live a life that is pleasing to God, and we will lack any real Christian joy, which will make it harder to persevere when the struggles and the battles come against us and make it that much harder to stay the course. That's why it's so important that we see the future, really see it, for all that it is. Not some unending church service in the sky. There is so much more 
That's why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could live radically. That's why they could set aside the things of this world and, and pursue unto death the things that God had promised because the reward was grand. It was big. It was significant. It was huge. So this morning, let me just encourage you this way because we're not going to get to the third and fourth point. You need to take the time to educate yourself about our future glory. You need to do that or re-educate yourself or remind yourself if you've already gone through that. You need to know the promises that the patriarchs saw and greeted from afar, from a distance, because it will revolutionize your life and radically change your priorities in this present world. In fact, let me tell you something here. We, to any person who comes and they're new with us, we try to hunt them down later and we give them this book. It's a revi- or shortened version of his full book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. But we give them this because it lets them in on the truth that heaven is not what many people believe it to be. Kind of a joke, really. Clouds floating around. I, I'm telling you something. I don't get excited about that. Do you? Clouds floating around. La, la, la. Heaven is a real place. A new heaven and a new earth we will be provided with. A kingdom. A city. A king. A land. It will be like earth, but redeemed, restored. It will be life as it was meant to be, beloved. And most of us have no clue. Because we just know what we've been told by a friend or what we've watched on a movie. And so this book kind of just begins to share some of that information with you. So we have, I don't know, 20, 25 of those back there. If you've never received this book, which would be weird because we always try to give you one if you come here, but maybe you never got it, pick one up before you leave. Okay? And if you know somebody, a friend, family member, someone who who needs to, to know about heaven, pick one up and give it to them as a gift. But I would encourage you to get the full copy and begin to explore all that heaven is. It will change your life, beloved. It will change your life. In fact, I just dare you. I dare you. I double-dog dare you to find out more about heaven, and I promise you, you will not be the same person. You will not be the same. The patriarchs stayed the course because they saw the future, and as a result, they spoke the truth. That's the third point, but we'll look at that next week. Now, if you don't know Christ, you have no future. This is as good as it gets. This present world is as good as it gets for you. So I would encourage you, beloved, if you don't know for sure that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we're going to have two men standing in the back right corner who want to talk to you, who want to explain to you how you can know for sure that you not only believe in Jesus Christ, but you are following Him, that you are on that course. And then you too can have hope in that future reward. Otherwise, you have nothing to hope in. 
except Friday. That's it. That's all you got. That's all you're looking forward to. But once you are a believer in Jesus Christ, who cares? I don't care if it's Monday, Friday. I don't care if it's my birthday, not my birthday. I don't care if I'm on vacation, not on vacation. I'm not living for this present world. I am on my way. I am going somewhere. Stranger and alien. And if you know Christ, as I said, then your future, beloved, could not be brighter. And regardless of the present circumstances and very difficult circumstances, I know many of you are experiencing right now in this particular stage of history that we are living in and the economic conditions and so on and so forth. Beloved, your future could not be brighter. It could not be brighter. You understand? Someone could come right now while you're sitting here Take all your stuff, okay? Plunder you, rip you off, burn down your house, take the tires off your car. Do you understand what I'm saying? They could take everything you've got. So what? I'm going somewhere. I'm not trying to find my satisfaction, my joy in this life. Why? It was never meant to give it to you. That's why the patriarchs died yet still not receiving the promises because they were never meant to experience those promises in this broken world. But they would certainly have them in the world and age to come. So whatever difficult circumstances you're facing, they are very real, beloved, and very painful. I understand. But stay the course by seeing the future. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. I thank you for bringing us together around it. Father, the truth is, we have a hard time seeing the promises that you have made to us as your people, those promises that are yet to be received in the future, because we have so much fog that we have allowed to come into our lives. Lord, clear it away. Father, I pray that we would refocus our minds and our hearts on what it is we are moving towards. That we would be able to see it, have conviction about it, know it to be true. That this is not our home, that we are pressing towards our home. A place without pain and suffering and misery and disease and sin and unrighteousness. A place of pure and utter joy and satisfaction. A place not filled with corruption and misery. A place filled with You, Lord. Where we will see our Savior face to face. And worship Him in a way that we have not been able to. Unhindered. Father, help us. We easily are distracted. We are caught up in everything else. Focused on everything else except the main thing. And because of that, our lives are not radically changed. 
We're not really living for you on fire as you have designed us to be. And we are bogged down, caught in the mud of materialism and a million other things that distract and take us away. Blind us to our hope. Father, may we put them all off. And especially in the midst of this season where consumerism and materialism are at their heights, may we think hard and long about what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. What it means that He came to this earth to die for our sins. What it means that He's coming back again for us and He has prepared a place. May we think long and hard and may that thinking alter our behavior and our attitude and our actions and our priorities in this life. And may we truly live as we ought so that we will live pleasing to You, Lord. Staying the course. Seeing the future. In Jesus' name, Amen.